morning, everyone. Uh, like Pastor Matthew said, we are continuing in the series that uh, Pastor Chris started, What Revelation Reveals. Right now, we're looking at the churches that Jesus writes to in the beginning of the book of Revelation. Aren't you thankful that we are a part of a church that is not scared to look at the book of Revelation? The Bible is clear that every book in the Bible is important. And Jesus says that there's a blessing to those who look at the book of Revelation and seek to understand it. Would you pray with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've blessed us with. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to worship you, to learn more about you. Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for the letters that you wrote to these churches and what we can learn from them. Lord, I pray today that you would give me the words to say. I pray that you would help me to speak what you want me to and that you would be honored and that it would be encouraging and a blessing to those who hear it. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I once heard a story about an artist, and this artist loved to paint things that looked one way, but then when you looked at the painting a little bit closer, you realized it was completely different than what you thought. One of the paintings that he was famous for was the painting of a church, specifically the inside of a church, inside the sanctuary or the auditorium. Inside the painting, there were pews filled with people, men, women, children, shaking hands, laughing, smiling. There was a pastor in the pulpit getting ready for his sermon, and the pianist was getting ready for her introductory song for the worship service. There were beautiful stained glass windows, the sun beaming in. As people would look at this painting, the artist would ask them to explain what they saw. He would ask them to describe this church, to give it an evaluation. When people saw the smiles on the the faces of the people inside the church, they would say, well, it looks like a pretty happy church. It looks like the people are having a good time. It looks like they're growing It looks like the pastor's serious about his message. You know, I would say that this is a healthy church. This looks like a living church. But then the painter would tell them to look more closely. And when they did, they would look in the baptistry, and they would see something that they didn't see at first. The baptistry was filled with cobwebs. The people who looked at this painting then changed their minds about what they thought about this church. They realized this church really wasn't as alive and thriving as they thought it was. See, today we're going to look at a church much like this one. It appeared to be alive, but Jesus says it was dead. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. 
Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This church was the church of Sardis. When John MacArthur preached on this uh, passage, he gave an illustration. He said, Astronomers tell us that light from the polar star takes 33 years to reach the earth. What that means is that that star could have been plunged into darkness 30 years ago, and its light would still be pouring down to earth. It would be shining in the sky tonight as brightly as if nothing had ever happened. It could be a dead star. But for over 30 years, we wouldn't know that it was dead. This is much like the church of Sardis. In our passage today, Jesus addresses this church in three phases. First, he evaluates the church in verse 1. Then, in verses 2 through 3, Jesus gives the church five commands. And then finally, Jesus ends the letter by giving it three promises to those who are believers in verses 4 through 6. Let's read our passage. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Jesus says this, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. And they will walk with me in white, because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. And I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. First, we see Jesus evaluation of the church in Sardis. In verse 1, here Jesus evaluates the majority of the church. He evaluates the church on a macro level. He gives it an overall description. This description is not a happy one. In fact, it is a very unhappy description for a church to be given. Jesus opens with the same pattern that he uses with the other churches. He reminds them of who this message is for and who it is from. This letter is for the pastor and the church and Sardis, and it is from Jesus himself. Jesus describes himself in an interesting way here. He says, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It's easy to understand what he means by the seven stars. If you look back in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus defines that. He says, The seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches. The word angel is just another word, a term for messenger. So in this case, these are the pastors of the churches that he's writing to. And just as Jesus holds his messengers in his hand, he also holds them accountable for how they lead his sheep. That's why when Jesus writes to these churches, he says, first of all, write to the pastor of this church. Jesus also says the one who has the seven spirits of God. These seven spirits are referred to four times in Revelation, chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 4, and chapter 5. Most commentators agree that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But why does he use the word seven? Why does he describe it as the seven spirits of God? Well, I agree with uh, John MacArthur that I think a better way to interpret it is the sevenfold spirit of God. And we see this a little bit better in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah is speaking about the Messiah. The shoot that will grow from the stump of Jesse. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So right there in that passage, Isaiah gives a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's what Jesus is talking about when he says the one who has the seven spirits of God. As Jesus continues in verse 1, we finally see the evaluation of this church. Jesus says, I know your works. I want to pause there for a second. Whenever you're reading God's word, you need to look for things like this that tell you a little bit more about God's character, about who God is. Jesus says, I know your works. Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. In fact, with each of these churches, Jesus says something similar. He says, I know your works. Sometimes he even says, I know your persecutions. I know your sufferings. Jesus was personal with these churches. He knew them intimately. And you know that should encourage us because it means that he is personal with us as well. For those of us who are believers, a part of his church, his bride, Jesus knows us intimately and he cares about us. He knows every detail about our lives, the big things and the small things. But you know, this should also convict us. Why? Because Jesus knows everything about us, the big things and the small things. If Jesus wrote you a letter, when you opened it, the only words on it were four words that said, I know your works. How would you feel? Would you feel encouraged or comforted? Or maybe a little bit ashamed, a little bit convicted, 
Maybe both. This was certainly something that should have convicted the church in Sardis. Jesus says, You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The King James Version puts it this way, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. So what does Jesus mean when he says, thou hast a name or a reputation that thou livest? Well, basically, Jesus is saying, you are nominally alive. You are only alive in name. Have you ever heard of a nominal Christian? It's someone who claims to be a believer, but when you really look at their life, you start to question whether there's any fruit that bears witness to that fact. The Oxford Languages describes or defines nominal in this way. It's a role or status existing in name only. In other words, Jesus is saying that this church is only nominally alive. It's alive in name only. Because you see, any church that claims to be a Christian church is claiming life. I mean, Jesus told us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So any church claiming to be a a part of Jesus is claiming that it has life within itself. These people were comfortable enough to claim Christianity, and yet it had no impact or result in their lives. That is why Jesus said this is a dead church. So how do we understand the word dead? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this to the Ephesians. He reminds them, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus isn't saying that this is a physically dead church. That doesn't even make sense. He's saying that this church is spiritually dead. You see, in a living church, people's lives are changed because they hear the gospel. In a dead church, they stay the same. In a living church, there is discipline of sin. In a dead church, there is tolerance and even acceptance of sin. In a living church, there is discipleship. There is spiritual growth. In a dead church, there is no spiritual growth. A living church witnesses to the world outside. A dead church is no different than the world. Instead of giving this church a grace sandwich like Pastor Chris has referred to with the other churches, Jesus gets right into what's wrong with this church because really he doesn't have much good to say about it. 
It is a dead church. But even after giving this bleak evaluation, Jesus still gives a glimmer of hope for this church. In verses 2 through 3, Jesus gives five commands for this church. In verses 2 through 3, Jesus says this, Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. The first command Jesus gives is, be alert. Some translations interpret it as, wake up. For those in the church who weren't saved, the majority of the congregation, Jesus is saying, wake up. Jesus is calling them to put their faith in him. As Ephesians 5.13 says, Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. For the believers, the few believers in this church, Jesus is giving them a call to let go of indifference and start living their lives wholeheartedly for him. For some reason, as humans, at least in my life I've seen this, it's easier for us to fall asleep when we should be most alert. And then when we're actually supposed to go to bed and fall asleep, it's hard for us to go to sleep. And Jesus had experienced this exact thing on the night before his crucifixion. Do you remember when Jesus took the disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane? He took specifically with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he told them this. He said, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. He says, remain here and stay awake with me. So Jesus leaves them for an hour. He prays for 60 minutes. And when he returns, what are they doing? They're fast asleep. Jesus says, So, couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is what Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis. He's saying, Wake up and stay awake. Pay attention. One commentator notes that this is not a call only to be awake, but to remain awake. The second command that Jesus gives to this church, he says, strengthen what remains. All hope is not lost. There are a few good things left in Sardis. 
They're about to die, but if you strengthen them, you can revive them. Whatever is good, strengthen it. If there are weak believers, even believers who are just indifferent, strengthen them. Help them grow in their faith. Jesus goes on, I have not found your works complete before my God. You know, I think that sometimes as believers, we get into this mindset that, well, I'm saved by faith. I'm not saved by works, so I don't really have to do a lot of good works. And that's true. You don't have to do good works to be saved. But you should do good works as a result of being saved. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus saved us. He created us for good works that he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Jesus cares about our works. He cares about what we do. Are you doing the works that Jesus has prepared for you to do? The third command Jesus gives is this. He says, Remember then what you have received and heard. This is certainly a reference to the gospel, to the word of God, to the truth about Jesus. Romans 10.17 tells us that faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. You've heard the gospel. You have claimed that you've received the gospel. You're not ignorant. The last two commands that Jesus gives, he says, keep it and repent. When Jesus says keep it, that word means to attend to carefully, to take care of it, to guard it. Kind of like what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Have you ever thought of God's word that way? If you have heard the gospel, if you have Jesus' word, if you have the Bible, you have been entrusted with that gift. What are you doing with it? How are you guarding it? This summer I heard a story about a man who went on a mission trip to Africa. During that mission trip, they had a Bible study with some of the people there in Africa. And after the Bible study, they needed to clean up or set up for an event. I'm not sure what it was. But anyway, this man set his Bible on the dusty ground and started to help them clean up and set up after the Bible study. Well, he noticed that one of the African women came over, picked up his Bible, and dusted it off with her dress. She came over to him. She handed it to him and said, this is too precious to put on the ground. Is that how you view God's word? That you can't even bring yourself to put it on the ground? Do you care enough about God's word? Are you guarding it? 
One commentator notes that this charge against Sardis is not that they were holding to some untruth. It's not that they were promoting some false religion. It's that they knew the truth and they weren't holding fast to it. That is the charge against Sardis. Jesus says, repent. It means change your course. Turn around. Go the other way. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This church knew the right thing to do. It knew God's word, and yet it wasn't doing anything with it. At the end of verse 3, Jesus gives the result of disobedience. He says this, If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. If you don't wake up and get your act together, that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is referring to judgment. Because for those who don't believe, when Jesus comes, he comes in judgment. But for those of us who do believe, we welcome Jesus coming. We are excited for Jesus coming. We eagerly await his coming. We don't have time to go through it right now, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, you want to look back there later, it gives a good description of how those who are dead view Christ's coming and how those who are alive view Christ's coming. So let me ask you this. Are you awake and alert and prepared for Jesus' coming? Can you say with Paul, Maranatha, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now Jesus switches from condemnation to commendation. In verses 4 through 5, Jesus encourages the few faithful believers in Sardis by reminding them of three promises that believers have. Jesus says this, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. The first promise Jesus gives is that believers will walk with me in white. Are you excited for that day when you get to see Jesus and walk with him? When he gives you new clothes, pure white clothes. These believers in Sardis were faithful, but their worthiness did not come from within themselves. Even Isaiah tells us that Our righteous acts, even our righteous acts, 
or like a polluted garment. So their worthiness did not come from them. Their worthiness came from, from Christ. Because as Revelation chapter 7 says, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that if you are in Christ, then he is your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. And that's why Paul can say in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that? The second promise that Jesus gives, he says, I will never erase his name from the book of life. In John 6, Jesus says this, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Finally, the third promise that Jesus gives, he says, I will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. You see, when we put our faith in Christ, we don't only receive salvation. I mean, we, we receive a lot of things. But one of those things is that we receive Christ as our defender. In the Bible, we read that Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ says that he accuses them before our God day and night. Do you realize that's going on right now? That Satan is able to accuse believers before God right now? Revelation 12 talks about that. It talks about how one day Satan will forever be cast out of heaven. He will never be able to come before God again. As believers, if Satan accuses us before God, you know what happens? Jesus is right there ready to acknowledge us by name before the Father. Well, Satan, you're right. Ian did mess up. He did do that. But you know what? I paid for his sin. And he's with me. If you're a believer today, that's what Jesus is doing for you right now. Be encouraged by that. Jesus acknowledges us by name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? 
as I conclude today, I want to ask you a question. Are you a conquering Christian? You say, well, what's a conquering Christian? Well, 1 John chapter 5 tells us. says this, Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ to save you from your sins? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? If you do, if you have done that, then the Bible tells you that you are a conqueror. Or are you a comfortable congregant? Are you someone who's able to claim Christianity, to go to church, to walk through the motions, and yet maybe you don't even have Jesus? Maybe you're void of the life that he offers, like the church in Sardis. You see, Jesus has made a way for you to be a conquering Christian by putting your faith in him, repenting of your sin, and trusting him to save you. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but holy and blameless. If you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus, then then he is calling for you today to wake up, to be alert, to come to him in faith and repentance before it's too late. Because today is the day of salvation. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then he is calling you to be continually alert. As Paul says in Ephesians, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Revelation 19 says this, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Will you be there? In 1878, Elisha A. Hoffman wrote this very applicable hymn. He said this, Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? When the bridegroom cometh, will your robes be white? Will your soul be ready for the mansions bright? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb.
Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the messages that you've sent to these churches. And Lord, we thank you that we can learn from these letters. We thank you that they are applicable to us. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here today who might be able to identify with the congregation in Sardis, maybe they're claiming that they have you in their life and yet they aren't truly saved. Lord, I pray that today that they would wake up, that they would put their faith and trust in you to save them from their sins. Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers here today that we would continually be alert, that we wouldn't fall into temptation. Lord, we thank you for your promises. Thank you, Lord, that one day those of us who believe will walk with you in white. Lord, thank you for never erasing our names out of the book of life. Thank you for your promises. Thank you most of all, Lord, for acknowledging us and paying for our sin. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.